They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first order using the code INGREDIENTS22. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. Coercive economic measures is America's favorite diplomatic tool set. Sanctions, tariffs, export bans, all that juicy stuff. So what are the trends in their usage and how can they be applied more effectively in the U.S.-China context? To discuss, we have on today Peter Harrell and Elizabeth Rosenberg, both fellows at CNAS. Liz and Peter were officials under Obama working in Treasury and State, respectively, on economic diplomacy and sanctions issues. Ashley Fung, a researcher at CNAS, also co-authored the report we'll be discussing today. Do note that we recorded this episode back in May 2020. There were some audio corruption issues that I procrastinated my way sorting through. Since then, Peter and Liz have been named to Biden's transition teams for the State Department and Treasury, respectively, turning this podcast into an interesting little window into how the new administration may think about these issues. Liz and Peter, welcome to China Talk. It's great to be on. Thanks. So before we jump into means, I think it's important to start one level up and talk about ends. So what traditionally have sanctions been used for and how has that changed over time? Well, that's a really broad question to open the uh, open the debate. But I do think it's important to keep in mind that sanctions, at least the, the trade embargo kind of sanctions are an ancient tool going back to at least 432 BC, time of ancient Greece, and some scholarly debate about the extent to which an embargo between a, a Sparta-allied city-state in ancient Greece and Athens triggered the Peloponnesian War. But in any event, there was an embargo uh, back then. And, and certainly, although the use of sanctions has ebbed and flowed two and a half millennia since, this really is an ancient, an ancient tool that we're talking about here. So if anyone has a good example from the Han Dynasty, please send me an email and I will read it out on a future edition of China Talk. Peter, fast forwarding 2000 years, would either of you two like to give a snapshot of the past 30 years of U.S. sanctions policy? Yeah, I'll jump in. So sanctions have been used to do a number of different things for U.S. foreign policy. Basically, it's the use of a kind of economic leverage by the United States to advance various political ambitions or objectives. And the way to do that is by creating economic, trade, or financial restrictions, which put the person or the entity on the receiving end in the position where they, feeling economic pressure, may then decide to engage in negotiation or make concessions in the political domain. And some of the classic areas where the United States has used this in the last couple of decades include, first and foremost, concerns related to narco-trafficking, to terrorism, and to nuclear or WMD proliferation. Those are some of the most foundational programs for U.S. sanctions. But in recent years, there's been a proliferation into a whole bunch of other kinds of concerns, which is to say these economic tools by the United States have been used to try and advance U.S. policy interests across a whole very large array of foreign policy, transnational security threats, organized crimes, malicious cyber activity, the list goes on and on. And there's been about a 
threefold increase in the number of sanctions programs, even in the last decade. The one addition I'd make to that, Liz, is human rights. And I think human rights is an interesting use of sanctions. Obviously, some history there. The first United Nations sanctions in the 1960s were UN sanctions on apartheid Rhodesia in the 1960s. And the U.S. obviously has some history in the uh, post-Cold War uh, era as well as using unilateral sanctions to you know, combat political repression and uh, to promote human rights. But that is with that history or even with that history, uh, that's another area where I think we've seen dramatic growth over the last decade or so and expect we'll be seeing more going forward. Would you say that Trump has reframed the context of using economic diplomacy from the anti-narco terrorism, nuclear proliferation type stuff that we saw more in the 90s and 2000s into pursuing more broad U.S. interests? I think the change has been more about intensity than direction. The Mm. sanctions authorities that were commonly used in the last administration and in the one before that are still often commonly used. There are some exceptions, right? We don't have an Iraq program in the way that we used to. The Balkans are not a focus. There are certain things that have come and gone. Libya, for example, sanctions tended to be more intensively deployed around a couple of particular political and historical moments. But some of those big programs like human rights, narco-trafficking, terrorism, proliferation, and some others have been in use with relative consistency over the last several years, so during the Trump administration, as they were before. And the meaningful difference, perhaps the reason why it's more center stage for people as a political matter is because of the intensity of their use and some of their framing in broader U.S. foreign policy. So we think of them as maximum pressure sanctions. This is the period of maximum pressure U.S. international economic policy. And in fact, many people in the foreign policy community have come to think of sanctions as the foreign policy instead of, as it used to be thought of, one instrument among a series of instruments of foreign policy. So I'm going with intensity rather than direction. Peter, do you want to do you want to take a stab at that? I, I very much agree with Liz that I think what we have seen over the last three and a half years of the Trump administration is an increase in te- in intensity more than a you know shift in the nature of the use. If you look at the number of designations that this administration has deployed. It's been the number of people and companies that get sanctioned every year. It's been substantially above the Obama or George W. Bush administration averages. But as Liz says, if you look at the targets of these sanctions, they actually, with the notable exception of Venezuela, which is an addition, they tend to be what you might call traditional targets of sanctions. It's Iran, it's North Korea, it's WMD proliferators. It has been an intensification of what I characterized as a a longstanding focus on human rights among American sanctions policymakers. There are differences in the way they are implementing some of these measures. But overall, I'd say it is more of an intensification. I think one of the big trends to think about, but this is not a Trump administration trend. This is a 
going back to the Obama and late George W. Bush administration trend is what I think of as the resurrection of comprehensive sanctions. In the 1980s and 1990s, we had all these comprehensive sanctions programs, programs that basically barred all trade with countries like Iraq. Famously, there was the UN oil embargo and trade embargo on Iraq. And then coming out of that experience in the 2000s or early 2000s, there was a shift towards targeted sanctions or smart sanctions, much more of a focus on you want to, uh, how do Robert, we designate individuals rather Peter, than sanction whole companies. P- Peter, uh, sorry, yeah. we have a pretty young audience. Can you like do two sentences on why people recoiled from oil for food? Yeah, no, absolutely. So as I was saying, in the 1980s and 1990s, you saw these broad sanctions that were trying to stop all trade with a country. So there was a UN-mandated embargo on Iraq for most of the 1990s, I guess for all the 1990s uh, following Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. And looking at that embargo after the fact, by the late 1990s, uh, early 2000s, there was a widespread consensus that the embargo had contributed to widespread poverty and indeed probably tens, if not hundreds of thousands of deaths in Iraq without actually accomplishing its objectives of ousting dictator Saddam Hussein. And so looking at the humanitarian consequences of that embargo in particular, but also other embargoes like the Yugoslavia embargo, led policymakers to say, instead of barring all trade with countries, we're going to sanction bad individuals, individual government officials, individual cronies of repressive regimes, individual WMD proliferators. And so you saw this boom of what are called smart sanctions or targeted sanctions in the 2000s period. And then really starting in 2008, 2009, 2010, so the end of the Bush administration going into the Obama administration, particularly with Iran, I think we really saw a pivot back to comprehensive sanctions. Now, we implemented the comprehensive sanctions in many ways by targeting lots and lots of individuals and companies such that Mm. basically the entire economy was targeted. But the impact was the effect of a comprehensive sanctions regime, even if the implementation was through lots and lots of individual sanctions. And I think that is what we've seen in North Korea, in Syria, what we are pretty close to seeing in Venezuela. So I think it's been interesting to see the debate come full circle around shift from comprehensive to targeted to comprehensive again. And now, of course, we are seeing some renewed debate, particularly among the progressive community around whether, and with the COVID-19 pandemic, around whether these comprehensive sanctions are in fact too tough and having too many adverse humanitarian consequences. So it's interesting to see that debate come full circle. Yeah, it's the exact parallel. There was Saddam Hussein, he would put babies who didn't have vaccines on a television and say these people are dying because of America. And while Iraq, Iran isn't necessarily quite as upfront about that, that's that's certainly an exact parallel of the argument that is that was going on 30 years ago. There's actually a really, unfortunately, honed tradition of the targets of sanctions blaming the United States for the economic woes and uh, difficulties in their communities, including inadequate availability of basic humanitarian goods. So 
Iran now is not the only one that's using sanctions as a kind of target or foil here to place blame for domestic problems, many of which are clearly pre-existing or independent, though may interact with sanctions. We're also seeing this, of course, in Venezuela at the present time. And it's hard to think of a broad-based sanctions program that does not have this feature right now, actually. It may apply very broadly to all of them. Yeah, it's like the same dynamic where if any civil society group gets a dollar of funding that may seem American, it's, oh, these are just American funded things. It's not actually our people being upset with us. And navigating this landscape is very hard for policymakers because the goal is also is not necessarily to make our whole country's population hate you because you're trying to sanction and make the leadership lives harder. Definitively, the goal is not collective punishment. And that's something I really appreciated what about what Peter was saying before is that 10 and 20 years ago, the transition and evolution of sanctions that U.S. policymakers were actively trying to create and push forward was figuring out way to focus on specific conduct of concern and particular malicious actors instead of engaging in the kind of economic activities and policies, putting in place those restrictions that would have a really broad-based effect on an entire population. And we're at another point of public policy reckoning about whether or not that goal has been served or what may need to change in order to get back to that priority. Back this summer, I asked for your donations after calculating that the revenue per hour I make making China Talk was about $5 an hour. Thanks to your commitments, there was a little bump, but I basically poured that money into hiring an editor to help me clean up these episodes and then use the time saves to pump out two shows a week in recent months. If you learned something this year listening to China Talk and you think this show is worth at least a dollar an episode to you, please consider becoming a supporter of China Talk at glow.fm slash China Talk. Perks include an exclusive YouTube playlist featuring all the songs that have appeared on the show. And if you commit $150 before 2021, I'll be sure to get you a China Talk mug. Actually, Liz, that brings up an interesting uh, point that maybe we should have discussed earlier about a way in which I think the Trump administration goals with respect to sanctions have changed. You and I both worked in the Obama administration. It was pretty clear then that in general, the Obama administration's goal of sanctions was to create pressure for some of these rogue governments to change their behavior, get Iran to agree to a nuclear deal, get North Korea uh, to agree uh, to a nuclear deal, get rogue actors to stop engaging in human rights uh, abuses. With this administration, at least with Iran and Venezuela, I think the goal is really clearly regime change. And so I actually think in a way, this administration does have a goal of simply increasing macroeconomic pressure on the countries as a whole, including on the people of these countries, until they just rise up and toss out toss out the regime. And I do think that is actually a, a difference that perhaps we should have talked about a, a little bit earlier. Peter, yeah, I, exactly. like that. I, I like that point. I think that's good. I was trying to think about what are the historical examples that would give credibility or legitimacy to the thinking that sanctions should be used as a compellence toward regime change. So actually, do you think that the anti-apartheid sanctions are an example here, which would be an interesting and ironic way to learn from them? Or are there other ones that you think 
would give credibility to that. Because as I'm looking around, I see a chorus of voices who think that sanctions cannot compel regime change. And I'm right there. If you go back to one of the seminal historical studies of sanctions in the 20th century, so a bit dated now, but if you go back to the Huffbauer, Schott, Elliott historical sanction study of 120 or 130 cases of sanctions, mostly in the 20th century. You know, I don't remember the exact statistic uh, off the top of my head. They did find that sanctions promoted regime change in a non-trivial percentage of the cases. It was it was uh, under under well under 50%, but it was more than 10%. I can't remember what it was. So so you know it is interesting that historically sanctions do appear to have at times fostered regime change, so again in a in a minority of cases. I have to say that in the modern era, the kind of 2010 forward era, we've not seen a single instance of sanctions fostering uh, regime change, which maybe raises interesting questions about efficacy and kind of a, a funny and roundabout uh, way. But well, to, you can, I mean, South on... Sudan, you could throw in there, right? Well, Sudan, let's take a look at Sudan, right? Look at look at the Sudan sanctions. So Sudan sanctioned since the 1990s under terrorism authorities for Darfur, violence-related issues, comprehensive U.S. embargo running right up to 2017. In January 2017, Obama ends the comprehensive, Obama suspends the comprehensive embargo. Trump then ends it in October 2017. Sanctions are basically all off. There's still some foreign assistance sanctions. There's still some targeted sanctions. The comprehensive embargo on Sudan from the U.S. ends in October 2017 after being suspended since the beginning of this year. And then it's in 2018 that the regime falls. Uh, and now Bashir may face the dock in the ICC, which I think is a really interesting you know, case that it was and shows the poor correlation here, illustrates the poor correlation here that it was the year after the sanctions came off that the regime fell. Although I want to point something out. The data set that you're talking about, the Gary Huffar, Kamalia data, is looking at international sanctions primarily. And one major factor there is that you're talking about issues around which there's at least a small, often much broader agreement in amongst nations about the nature of a security threat or a policy challenge. And so I could see how it, it stands to reason that when you're thinking about more multilateral sanctions efforts, including when you're talking about obligations at the UN, which are incumbent upon member states to apply pressure to particular regimes, that there might be a higher correlation with regime change than when you're talking about, say, the last 10 years or so, which has featured a lot more unilateral moves or where there has been multilateralism, it's been uneven in pressure where the United States has leaned much harder and in fact has really become accurately characterized as being most of the muscle of the sanctions. And so perhaps a lesson there is unilaterally, it's very difficult to deliver on regime change by comparison to an earlier era where there was a higher statistical correlation in a more multilateral setting. But your Sudan point makes clear that the, the data is not perfect here, and we've got examples going in both directions. So one last question. We've been discussing a bit the trends going in the Trump administration, but there's also an executive <laughs> power lens through which we can look at this. And the trend being in foreign policy, like the whatever the previous president does, the subsequent president is generally going to take that power and run with it because presidents like 
to be able to take actions and do things. Do you think that the kind of expansion of the intensity of sanctions over the past few years would carry over into a uh, Biden administration? Or is this subject to different dynamics than a simple executive power uh, story? I like what you've just done in framing this question, because it allows us to talk about a couple of dirty inside secrets that characterize sanctions and sanctions politics in the United States in which lots of people around the world aren't necessarily uh, brought into or fully understand. And that is that sanctions in the last five years in particular have taken on a little longer than that, but have taken on an intensively partisan character on certain issues. And they've also become the battleground uh, in which Congress and the administration are fighting about who should control the direction of foreign policy. And it is an argument about executive power. It's also an argument about the nature of foreign policy and trying to pull back some of the authorities that Congress has traditionally had, particularly around Iran and Russia programs, and increasingly on issues like international corruption and human rights, where Congress has really laid down very powerful markers about the authorities that should exist. It's hard for me to see a next administration, say a Biden administration, departing from the practice and statecraft of sanctions. The cat's out of the bag here. There is no turning back from many of the traditions and political culture that has embraced the use of sanctions. But I also can't see that we'll get out of this domain of a domestic political fight that is both constitutional and partisan around sanctions. And unfortunately, for those countries that are caught in the crosshairs that wind up feeling some of the pain of this domestic political fight, they're going to continue to feel that pain. And I don't just mean the direct target of sanctions, but also the secondary countries or companies that wind up getting pulled into it as well when there are secondary sanctions. Yeah. Well, I it's interesting. agree I... with you that I think that sanctions have taken on more and more of a partisan cast. And I think that a a Biden administration would want to continue uh, to have many of the new authorities and powers that the Trump administration has had. So I think on a number of the big ticket sanctions programs, obviously a Biden administration would probably take a different tack and potentially mm-hmm. including substantial easing of sanctions. Vice yep. President Biden is on record as saying that he would go back into the Iran nuclear deal, but, which would yeah. obviously be a big sanctions easing. He has said he does not think the U.S. should be pursuing regime change in in Venezuela. I don't know exactly what that would mean for sanctions policy there, but certainly a potential for a, a different uh, approach of some kind. He has called for a, a elections uh, and a path to democracy in, in Venezuela, but says the goal should be a negotiated solution that gets to elections and a, and a path to democracy. And then I think, as, as you have seen played out play out as well, I think there is this growing debate in progressive democratic circles coming to what we were talking about a few minutes ago about the humanitarian costs of sanctions. We've seen Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren call very directly for some fairly broad sanctions easing on Iran during the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic. We've also seen Congresswoman Ilhan Omar very directly in the Washington Post and elsewhere, pretty forceful 
criticisms of much of existing U.S. sanctions policy. And so, well, I think, you know, any Biden administration is going to keep these authorities. And I think there's going to continue to be a, a, a strong political divide around sanctions I think it's a little open to see exactly how aggressively a Biden administration would pursue these, you know, kind of comprehensive programs. Clearly, you'll still see lots of targeted sanctions on human rights abusers and that kind of thing. But I think there's more of an open question about where comprehensive sanctions programs go. I agree. And I'm also going to watch where Congress goes on this, too, because Congress has gained momentum that I think will only accelerate going forward around how to advance foreign policy priorities using sanctions. And there's a lot of ideas swirling around targeting China, for example, and other international, transnational threats. And I expect that will intensify going forward. Yeah, I just to have another take on your view, Liz, I think it's part of a broader story of of Congress starting to finally do foreign policy again after God knows how many decades of really deferring the entire space to to the executive branch. And sanctions are one of the most straightforward ways that Congress can force the administration's hand. And because it's a generally somewhat bipartisan thing to get 80 people to sign up to blame China or blame Iran or blame Venezuela for something, it tends to be it, it especially over the past few years has been like the go-to tool for for Congress to make its voice heard on these issues. So we've talked a little bit about Congress, but I'm curious what your takes are on the institutional biases of different U.S. executive departments towards these the use of sanctions and other economic tools. In a way, I think it's it's hard to answer that definitively right now because we are in a moment of enormous change and transition about the functional role, as well as the perceived leadership on sanctions and other coercive economic tools. It's an incredibly dynamic moment. And there's a renaissance of creativity and ingenuity going on right now in developing and deploying economic tools to advance U.S. foreign policy. Now, I don't think that exists in the domain of strategy, which is to say that the strategy in with that these tools should be used to advance, but certainly at the level of tactics and tools, there's a big proliferation and dynamic movement going on. As far as biases, it used to be the case that the Treasury Department was really the primary lead for implementing and enforcing sanctions measures. And they many of the authorities to do that were uh, literally legally delegated to the Treasury Department to do that. But there's been a movement for a number of years, including in the last administration and this one, to delegate more authority, both at the formal level, as well as a kind of informal delegation of the podium or the political messaging to state to uh, lead on more of these areas of sanctions implementation. The enforcement, though, those authorities really still lie more narrowly with justice or treasury, for example, and, and can be elsewhere as well. But but that sort of looks like the back end and some of the powerful initial signaling the politics of this will if you will, are led from the State Department and the White House more and more. Nevertheless, there's been this enormous surge forward amongst 
policy leaders at Treasury and at Commerce, for example, to say nothing of the officials who run trade policy for the United States, who have all been thinking up and deploying new instruments and tools to advance, in particular, U.S. leverage and posturing in the competition with China. And there have been really headline-grabbing, eye-catching moves by commerce over the last year or two in particular that have, dark really, that have, well, yes, I think people say that from all places on the spectrum. Some people who don't want commerce to play the national security role that it is playing. Some people who are relieved that it's finally moving forward to do that. The Defense Department has views, strongly held views about the Commerce Department taking a lead on national security issues. And there's tremendous internal debate within the administrative branch about how these national security tools using economic leverage should best advance U.S. interests. So actually, I think whatever our biases were three years ago, we should really lay them down and start thinking afresh about what is going on right now. Taking a page from Tyler Cowen's Conversations with Tyler podcast playbook, I would love to do an overrated, underrated on the uh, current tools that are in vogue in the uh, coercive, the economic coercive regime that uh, the Trump administration is currently using. Let's start off with USTR and Section 301. So I think that is has been underrated, though now it's probably uh, fairly rated. Uh, 301 is the section of U.S. law that the Trump administration used to impose uh, tariffs on the vast majority of U.S. imports from China starting in 2018 and, and continuing to the present day. And if you look at the economics um, uh, of the tools the Trump administration has used against uh, China, that is by far and away the biggest uh, one. We're talking about, I think, something on the order of 50 or $60 billion of tariffs annually that yeah. are coming into force. Definitely the economically, as of today, the big kahuna of the tools this administration has rolled out. Commerce's entity list. So the entity list, for your listeners, is this targeted tool that commerce has that can prohibit U.S. exports to individual companies. And notably, this is the tool commerce used to prohibit U.S. exports to Huawei last year, pretty much exactly a year ago now, cutting off American sales of semiconductors and software, including the Google App Store and others, to, to Huawei. This is moving up quickly in the Trump administration's uh, list of tools. They're using it in a lot of cases now. Uh, I have to say, looking at some of the early results, although I think it can be a useful tool, uh, might be a little bit overrated. Despite Huawei getting hit with the entity list, its revenues actually went up last year. It's been able to find non-American suppliers in Japan and Taiwan for many of the goods that it was buying from Americans. And while I think there's a place for the entity list, I, I worry it may not uh, actually be achieving fully what policymakers hope it will achieve. State and Treasury's targeted sanctions. Overrated. And the reason why I suggest that is because we have come to believe as uh, a set of American analysts or the policymaking community that these tools can do more than they actually can do. For example, folks believe that they can foment regime change, including in a unilateral U.S. unilateral capacity. 
And demonstrably, that's not happening as the United States has really put its put floored the the vehicle of sanctions here on Iran and getting there on Venezuela too. Anyway, targeted sanctions could be made more obnoxious. What do you mean by obnoxious? Do you mean that they could hurt the target economically more, or do you mean that they could actually better achieve political concessions from the targets? Those are different things. Like on the first, we've seen lots of success cases where sanctions can make life very difficult for the target and create tremendous uncertainty for people in all over the world, which can disincentivize both domestic and foreign investment. It can show up in growth targets. It can have a lot of economic effects. And we've done work on this in the past. But transitioning that into a political forward movement and concessions takes a kind of skill and nimble diplomacy that isn't necessarily matched with the, those powerful punishing economic tools. And we often look at sanctions and think that they should do all of that for us. They should, we think they fail if we're not delivering on the astute politics and diplomatic negotiation that is required to get us those political outcomes. So we've come to think about them as the tool that can do it all, whereas, in fact, they can't. So I think they've been overrated from that perspective. The Department of Justice and law enforcement tools. So I think that's been underrated. I think there is a lot more that can be done with using prosecutions of companies, including Chinese and Russian companies that are engaged in nefarious and unfair uh, trade practices. We're seeing this administration, the Trump administration, deploy these tools defensively, going after commercial espionage in the United States and illegal foreign influence operations in, in the United States. And I think there is probably a lot more that can be done there. I also think you can use law enforcement tools more offensively to go after various unfair practices that big uh, foreign companies engage in around the world, as long as those companies have something, some commercial operation here in the United States that you can ultimately you know, serve with papers and, uh, and attach. I want to agree with that and just say one of the major benefits for pursuing law enforcement action where it's available is that the documents and disclosures that can be introduced into the public domain coming off of one of these actions serves to be can serve to be really productive and helpful for the community of companies and countries trying to figure out what does it look like in practice to have a say narco trafficking money laundering ring with links to terrorism what kind of companies did they set up who are their lawyers? What jurisdictions are they using? Who are their front companies and agents? And to be able to bring that into the public domain from a law enforcement action brings a lot of incredibly useful information to regular companies and banks and governments all over the world trying to figure out how to avoid being manipulated and taken advantage of by these criminals and money launderers and therefore how to create better public policy to make us safer. So, Peter, I, I know there's like a common career path among ex 
sanctions lawyers to go work at banks and help them make sure they're not running afoul of these laws. Um, do you have any sense of what the dark side looks like? Have you looked at who these lawyers are and how long they can go before ending up in jail themselves or helping evade these sorts of sanctions? Oh gosh, that's a, that's a, a provocative question, and I should I should say I am in addition to my work with Liz and the Center for New American Security team, I am a practicing sanctions compliance lawyer. Let me just say, I think on the, the sort of sanctions law practice, looking generally at what is what is out there, I think most lawyers are leaving government service, going into what I view as very reputable and appropriate kinds of activities, helping make sure big banks, big companies, whether in the US or Europe, stay on the right side of the law. Because as you as you note, Jordan, these are very complicated laws, and particularly in the implementation, they're just extremely complicated sets of rules. And I think it is a good thing that big uh, multinational enterprises want to hire you know, competent counsel to stay on the right side uh, of the law. So that's one area of practice. And then, of course, you have the folks who are representing sanctioned uh, individuals, sanctioned individuals, whether people like Oleg Deripaska, a Russian oligarch, or narco traffickers, or all the rest, uh, are entitled uh, to legal representation. I actually think it is a uh, good thing that those guys get representation by lawyers for two reasons. First of all, as a lawyer, I believe everybody is entitled to a a good defense, and and I think that applies in the sanctions arena as well. And second, look, the goal of sanctions is to change behavior. And I think one of the successes of sanctions programs is when someone who is sanctioned hires counsel, goes into OFAC and says, you know what, I'm going to do something different and clean up my act to try to get off the list. They give an example of that I was not involved in. It was public in the, the news last year, the Trump administration sanctioned a couple of European uh, shipping companies for shipping Venezuelan oil to Cuba in violation of U.S. sanctions. They hired counsel, went into OFAC, committed to never again shipping Venezuelan oil to Cuba or engaging in other acts that violate U.S. sanctions, and got off the list. And I think that's a good outcome. That's a, a, a good thing. That's a good outcome for U.S. sanctions. Obviously, there are some lawyers out there who are probably advising shady companies on how to stay just on the right side of the line or how to not get caught crossing over the line. But I frankly think that is a small minority of what's going on out there. I think certainly all the the ex-government officials I know worked in Treasury or in state are focused on keeping people on the right side of the line or helping people who are prepared to amend their ways to clean up their act and move forward. So we've all been watching the Michael Jordan documentary. If you get in gambling debts, then is that what is what you're saying is like there isn't really a dark side with um, tens of millions of dollars waiting for your for your talent set, Peter? I think there are is there is plenty of money to be made busting sanctions, right? If you are a businessman in the Middle East willing to ferry gold for Iranian Iranian oil, there are gold bars to be had doing that kind of yeah. thing. If you are a crooked banker in Hong Kong or China willing to forge financial forge information on financial transactions to help North Korea evade uh, sanctions. There is plenty of money uh, to be had out there. Or if you're a shipper willing to help a sanctioned warlord obtain arms, yeah, there's plenty of money to be had out there doing that. 
what I don't think is happening is that you're seeing a bunch of sort of ex-U.S. government treasury and state officials getting involved uh, in those kinds of activities. Good to hear. I have one more overrated, underrated that I want to come back to just because it's a power I'd never heard of. And I was curious for your take. Commerce and the IRS's anti-boycott laws. We've done some work on this, actually. And how about underrated and ripe for updating and development to better accommodate the conditions of today and acknowledge that when U.S. companies are, for example, targeted by China around areas in which they seem to have come afoul of Beijing's view of sovereignty and its views on territoriality and otherwise offended Beijing, and they are then targeted by Chinese formal and informal coercive economic measures, these companies may be stronger and strongest if they have some U.S. legal framework to rely on that will prevent them from taking measures that so they're bending to China's will in this case. They're forced to change their actions and activities in order to be more complementary to Chinese foreign policy priorities. So we've worked on this a little bit before, and it does seem like there's opportunity for thinking and updating. It's not the only area that can be uh, refreshed for present circumstances, but this is one that could be uh, subject for a lot more policy work. Liz, you need to add one sentence about what it is. So going back to the 1970s and the Arab uh, embargo of Israel, the U.S. adopted anti-boycott laws that basically prohibit American firms from complying with foreign boycotts. It basically became illegal for a big U.S. firm like General Electric to boycott Israel because it was complying with the Saudi Arabian and general Arab boycott of, of, of Israel. The focus mm. of implementation of these laws from the 1970s to today is primarily the Arab state uh, boycott of uh, Israel. It has not been a focus of implementation of these laws uh, to try to prevent American firms from complying with what we are seeing out of China more and more of boycotts of Taiwan and various companies and that kind of thing. And I do think there is space to think about how to, as Liz says, update and overhaul these laws to make them a little bit more relevant to try to discourage American companies from complying with some of these Chinese-sponsored boycotts. Um, so the sanctions world is a rather colorful one. One of your suggestions in this piece is that the U.S. should do a better job of publicizing sanctions offenders as a sort of like name and shame activity. I'm curious, uh, which sanctioned organization or individual do you would do a good job playing a starring role in a sanctions Netflix series? First, I have a serious answer for you. And then I have one that I think speaks to the uh, playfulness of the question that you asked. But here's my first serious answer. And that is the reason why we have in prior writings, and I think really on a consistent basis, I feel like we're banging this drum all the time, talked about the need to talk as much as possible about who is sanctioned and why. The reason for that is that when the U.S. government does that and can explain the activities that got someone on a sanctions list to begin with, and particularly when they can talk about people in different industries and in different countries and where the scheme 
of sanctions busting was big and where it was small, it helps for the world to understand better this series of legal authorities on sanctions, which are really seen as complicated and Byzantine. It's a black box. People all over the world don't understand where this comes from. And that doesn't just mean the political drivers, but why this target and not that one? And there's so much confusion, which has led to strange and funny and sometimes really counterintuitive and unhelpful instances of overcompliance or misperception of what the goal of a measure was. So that's the real and serious reason why it is so essential to talk up why certain entities are designated and explain that. And actually, in the last year or so, there have been a number of interesting enforcement cases that have really sought to get at different newer industries, both actually designations in the first instance and enforcement cases, to explain and send the signal that there are legal obligations in all kinds of sectors that might not have been aware previously that sanctions, U.S. sanctions applied to them. So that's my serious answer. My more whimsical answer is there are a lot of really colorful characters on the U.S. sanctions list, and some of the most colorful of them are the ones that are narco-trafficking money launderers, and there's also a series that have been associated with the Russia sanctions program that are also just like incredibly colorful figures. And some of the ones that came to my mind first are, for example, Victor Boot, El Chapo, Rosa Barone Export is another good example. The Zarab and that network, even thinking of like the Venezuelan vice president, for narco-trafficking reasons, for example, Deripaska himself. How about the AQ Khan network? Literally, there have been movies and miniseries that riff off exactly what we're talking about. In some cases, some of the particular figures, some of these narco-traffickers in particular, there's actually, and unfortunately, no shortage of colorful miniseries dramas that could feature people from the sanctions list. Yeah, I, I I can just imagine reshooting Narcos, but from a, a Treasury Department office instead of running around in the jungle and and shooting people and getting high and and sleeping with prostitutes. It could be. It, I, I think we could. I think we could. I think we could swing it, Liz. Pete, any ideas on your end? Uh, you know, I'd go exactly where Liz was. I think that if if you know, let, let's be frank, the guys who are sanctioned because they worked at a bank that was illicitly moving North Korean money or something like that, obviously hugely important to sanctions busting, is not going to give your Netflix producer the great visual they're looking for. The narco trafficker in his palace, or as, as Liz mentions, the current Colombia or the current Venezuelan vice president, Tarek El Asami, who's now running Venezuela's national oil company, very colorful uh, character who's been sanctioned for a massive global drug running scheme. I agree with her. A number of the Russian oligarchs with their you know, homes in London and Italy uh, and their jets in Russia and that kind of thing, I think would give that Netflix producer the kind of visuals they look for. 
Although you can really jazz it up. Like one of my favorite, this says a lot about me, but one of my favorite movies out there is the one that features the FinCEN agent. Like this makes money laundering and for investigations and enforcement. It's like, it's extremely sexy and exciting. Hats off to the good people who administer the Bank Secrecy Act on that one. And you may or may not be interested to know, Jordan, that we have actually had, honest to goodness, Hollywood researchers and producers ask us this question, looking for materials. Yeah, that I think some people have, as you pointed out with your reference, and maybe for future material, looked to this list as a source of inspiration. I feel like there's like a video game in here too. Of just, I guess you don't really need to do a video game. You can just actually investigate these people online. There's nothing stopping any person from Googling and whatnot. It's been interesting over the last number of years, in particular with the rise of social media. It's clear that both NGOs, nonprofit organizations that work with U.S. sanctions officials and U.S. sanctions officials themselves are watching what happens on social media. If the if sure. the son of a well-connected Syrian crony of, of Bashar Assad shows up in Southern France and on his social media profile, he's showing photos of him in Southern France with race cars and things like that. That does get noticed by sanctions policymakers. These people would know by now they should not show off their loot, but I guess some people never learn. Yeah, this is human. People, the, we went back to ancient Greece and Rome, like Alcibiades was showing off his tigers and whatnot to everyone, to everyone's acceptance. So finally, in the conclusion of your paper, that the U.S. government has yet to systematically study either U.S. vulnerabilities to Chinese economic coercion or rigorously analyze the impacts and costs of economic coercive measures against China. So what First off, what gives? This seems like an important thing to look at. And what's the ba- what's the best way to do this without it? it end up turning into sort of a wish list for industry? So, so first, I think this will surprise many of your listeners. The U.S. has used sanctions more and more over the last 10 years, as all your listeners know. But if you go to U.S. government websites or public reports, there's no, there are no analyses of what are the economic impacts these sanctions have been having on their targets and what are the collateral costs to the United States? Now, there are in individual It's crazy cases, too, Peter, because every single regulation needs to go through a cost-benefit analysis sanctions. before it goes on I the think books. this is the, uh, Sanctions regulations do not need to go through um, because of some exemptions in the way the law works, the kind of cost-benefit analysis that environmental regulations or building code regulations need or automotive manuf- manufacturing regulations need to go through. Now, for many years... Because sanctions, frankly, were comparatively small economically, and they serve urgent national security priorities, you can see you know, why there wasn't such a focus on economic analysis. But given how much we're using these, how important a tool they have become, and the potential for major collateral costs and unintended impacts, particularly as we turn to sanctions on big countries like Russia, which we've done over the last few years, China, where we may be headed. I think we need a much more rigorous approach to analyzing how these things work, where they're succeeding, and what the unintended costs are. Because at the end of the day, that's going to make for much better decision making. I just want to add that it's not that U.S. policymakers and leaders are unconcerned about this. There are plenty of people who 
would be actively interested in making sure that their policy steps are as impactful and effective as they can be. It's just that we have a kind of rush towards using the instruments and the tools without the building up of the architecture for analyzing consequences before, during, and after their implementation, or the kind of strategic consideration of how one instrument should go along with another and another in the economic domain, complementing diplomacy and other forms of engagement or competition. So it's not that no one has thought that this could be an important thing to do, rather that there must be a broader appreciation that what's going on now is inadequate and must be more rigorously expanded and and institutionalized and discussed in order to best frame effective policy and minimize some serious unintended consequences about which there's fresh news reporting and indignation and dismay amongst policymakers and the private sector all the time. Let's quickly do big and small fish. So what's this idea you put forward of spearing both big and small fish to make everyone scared? In a paper that I wrote with Professor Jordan Tama, published at the end of last year, we talked about how to build credibility and effectiveness around sanctions. And one of the things we discussed was the need to spear big and small fish in enforcement. And what that means is going after some of the biggest targets of enforcement, most egregious cases of sanctions violation and smaller instances that may be in different sectors or not as high a dollar value, but that are important because they can explain to sectors that haven't been targeted by sanctions enforcement before, may not be aware that they are subject to sanctions, that in fact, they do have exposure and what doing something wrong or violating sanctions looks like in order for them to understand how to do it better. And one of the things that is certainly the case is that for some people and companies, entities that want to violate sanctions, they can handle some amount of punishment or consequence for violating sanctions if it's small, and they could think of that as a cost of doing business. It's not a disincentive to them. So for those kind of conglomerates, you have to act bigger in order to actually send a deterrent and make people change their ways. But you don't necessarily have to come down like a load of bricks and force into insolvency. Some actors that have screwed up, maybe slightly willfully, but that would be interested in getting on the right path. The goal of sanctions is not to crush someone's company and economy, but rather to achieve a ecosystem where responsible actors don't engage in sanctionable activity. And for those who do, those are the ones you want outside to stop doing business. But you want to try and give people the opportunity to do the right thing. That's what gets you the policy improvements or achievement of your goals. So can I add just one point on this? Liz and Jordan Tama and Brian Early have done very interesting research that really talks about the shift in OFAC enforcement, U.S. sanctions enforcement. And if you look at the cases in the 90s and 2000s, what you saw was a whole lot of cases 
with small dollar fines. Fine might be $30,000 or $50,000 or something like that. (laughs) And then starting in 2006 or so, as a result of a very conscious shift on the part of U.S. sanctions enforcement officials, you saw the number of cases go down, but the value of the cases go way up. So instead of 80 cases or 100 cases a year, you saw 15, but the value of the fines would be $50 million, $100 million, a billion dollars. And what Treasury was trying to do with that is to get the financial sector in particular to radically change the way it does compliance. Um, Because Treasury identified the financial sector as a node that if it, an economic node, that if it really changed the way it does compliance and hires thousands of people and revamps compliance, you could actually keep bad actors like terrorists in Iran out of the global financial system, or at least make it much harder. And I think that has succeeded. And that's why you see Iran doing gas for gold schemes. You still see financial evasion, but you, I think gotten a lot harder for these rogue actors to access the, the financial se- uh, sector. You're now seeing the U.S. government begin to target the shipping uh, sector, maritime shipping, in much the same way, where they are really looking to investigate shipping companies, tanker companies, that kind of thing. I think with a similar goal in mind of getting a sector that has previously been pretty opaque, did not do a lot of due diligence on its customers, was willing to play pretty fast and loose with the law, to really radically rethink the way it does compliance with kind of the goal of making it a lot harder for Iran to find an oil tanker, just the way it's now a lot harder for Iran to find a bank. I I totally agree. And one thing I'll just tag on to say is that This is one reason why we see some of the most designated entities or networks making a real surge into alternative currencies and value transfer platforms like North Korea is making a huge and by the way, effective for their purposes, push into uh, cryptocurrency, exploiting cryptocurrency like cyber heists of cryptocurrency exchanges and getting access to this in order to engage in its proliferation activities. So if it were easier for them to use a conventional bank and conventional hard currency, they would, but they're moving into this because they see an opportunity to go for it undetected. So far, it's working out for them. Liz and Peter, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. It's a pleasure. Thank Thank you. Thanks for having us.
Oh, my in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $20 off your first order using the code PREPARED20. Now the only thing to worry about is dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.